Welcome to the Weekly Appellate Report for June 17th, 2016. I'm your host, Brian Cardile. I'm happy to welcome you to this week's edition of the program, which issues each Friday and features commentary from California practitioners, jurists, and academics on appellate issues of salience. This week is no different. Four fantastic guests are joining me. We'll hear from Erwin Chemerinsky, Dean of the UC Irvine School of Law, Cheryl Burgess, and Joe Cianfrani, both partners at the firm Kenobi Martins, and Myron Moskowitz, legal director of the Moskowitz Appellate Team in the Bay Area. Dean Chemerinsky and I will discuss a Second Amendment-related ruling filed in the Ninth Circuit last Thursday, Peruta versus the County of San Diego. There, an en banc court held that the Second Amendment does not protect the right of citizens to carry concealed weapons in public, and, in so holding, upheld a California law requiring residents to show good cause before qualifying for concealed carry permits. A split opinion authored by Judge O'Scanlan had previously struck down the law, and four dissenting judges in the en banc opinion felt the majority's framing of the issue was too narrow, and that it should have addressed whether or not the concealed carry restriction violates the Second Amendment when viewed in concert with California's general ban on open firearm carrying. Mr. Chemerinsky will also forecast the future of Second Amendment jurisprudence in the United States Supreme Court when it again eventually returns to full strength. My two guests from Kenobi Martins will speak on a U.S. Supreme Court patent ruling for Monday, which stands to have an important impact on the award of enhanced damages. That ruling, in Halo Electronics vs. Pulse Electronics, disposed of the existing test for when enhanced damages should be awarded, deeming it too rigid. Ms. Burgess and Mr. Cianfrani, both IP specialists, will discuss how this opinion will affect the award of such damages in future patent litigation. Finally, Myron Moskowitz will join me to chat about the art of oral argument. His new firm, formed last year and comprising former appellate justices and law clerks, boasts a 70% appellate reversal rate, well above the average rate of around 20%. Mr. Moskowitz will share insights on how to deliver your best possible oral argument, and also when it might be in your client's best interest to waive oral argument altogether. Mr. Moskowitz will also discuss a practice of the 4th Division of the 2nd Appellate District, the only division in the state that disseminates draft opinions prior to argument, and he'll make the case why this practice should be the norm for appellate courts throughout California. But before hearing from our guests, let me first remind you that CLE credit is available for your having listened to this show. You can find a link to a short true-false test on the dailyjournal.com page where this podcast appears. And with that, let's get to my conversation with Erwin Chemerinsky. I'm very honored to welcome back to the program Erwin Chemerinsky, Dean of the UC Irvine School of Law. Mr. Chemerinsky is a renowned authority on constitutional law, a prolific author, a regular contributor to the Daily Journal opinion section, and also a previous guest of the podcast. Mr. Chemerinsky, welcome back. It's a pleasure to talk with you again. The case we're discussing today is Peruta versus the County of San Diego, and we might mention at the top that, of course, our conversation, this case, which deals with the Second Amendment and gun rights, occurs in the shadow of a very insensible tragedy which occurred last week. Um, But for the period of our conversation, we'll largely set that aside and and reckon with the Second Amendment doctrine. Um, So getting into that... This case was brought by two plaintiffs and, and now two appellants, and it challenges a California law as violative of the Second Amendment. Could you tell me a bit about that law? Of course. California law prohibits a person from carrying a concealed weapon in public, but it allows a person to obtain a permit to do so in the county where he or she lives or works. A permit can be issued by a county if the applicant demonstrates good moral character, completes a firearm training course, and is good cause for carrying such a concealed weapon. And now good cause is not specifically defined in that statute. I believe counties are able to, to create their own definition of what exactly qualifies as good cause. Is that correct? 
The statute does not define good cause. Each county can decide for itself what meets this standard. But it's clear that the legislature didn't want to allow people to easily be able to get and have concealed weapons. The point of this law was to generally prohibit concealed weapons, and it would say that the county has to come up with some reason to believe there's good cause for this person to have a concealed weapon before a permit is issued. Now, as a bit more preface, and as will come to be important in our our discussion a little bit later, what are the laws in California regarding open carry? California prohibits people from openly carrying weapons. Okay, now, in this case, the two plaintiffs brought suit at the trial court, but I I believe their cases were disposed of relatively quickly with, with summary judgment motions. Is that correct? That's right. Edward Pruda lives in San Diego County. He applies for a license to carry a concealed firearm. His application is denied because he hasn't shown good cause under the county policy. Adam Richards lives in Yolo County. He also seeks a license to carry a concealed weapon, but he too was told he can't have the permit because he hadn't shown good cause. Each of these individuals file lawsuits, they're actually two separate suits, arguing that the denial of the concealed weapons permit and the California law were unconstitutional. Now, after the the two plaintiffs were met with an adverse summary judgment ruling, the Ninth Circuit got to weigh in on this issue. I believe it's been a couple of years now. And in that opinion, Justice O'Scanlan wrote uh, an opinion reversing the district court. Can you tell me a bit about that opinion? That's exactly right. The district courts granted summary judgment in each case, holding the county's policies don't violate the Second Amendment. As you pointed out, the Ninth Circuit, in a two-to-one decision, reversed the district courts, Judge Scanlon wrote for the majority. Chief Judge Thomas wrote for the dissent. The case came out in 2014. Judge Scanlon said that the Second Amendment protects the right to have guns outside the home. He said California prohibits open carrying of guns. If it also can easily prohibit carrying of concealed weapons, then there's no right to have guns outside the home. He said there must be a right then to have concealed weapons, and the law that prohibits it except when there's good cause, violates the Second Amendment. Now, I'd be curious to know, when that split opinion came down in 2014, did you anticipate this issue being heard en banc? I did anticipate that it would be heard en banc. I think it's important to remember that Judge O'Scanlan is the most pro-gun rights judge on the Ninth Circuit. He may be the most pro-gun rights judge on any federal court of appeals in the country. And given the ideological composition of the Ninth Circuit, I would have guessed a majority would be much more inclined to agree with Chief Judge Thomas than with Judge O'Scanlan. Sure, and certainly uh, they did so. So we'll get to the en banc review. Now, I think it's important to sort of lay out at the outset here the separate contentions brought by the appellants because only really one of them was fully reckoned with by the majority. So I think there are three essential contentions that the appellants brought. One was that the the Second Amendment guarantees at least some ability of a member of the general public to carry firearms in public. A second contention was that California's restrictions on concealed and open carry when viewed together violate the Second Amendment. And the third contention was that this specific restriction requiring good cause before a resident could receive a concealed carry permit that independently also violates the Second Amendment. Now, with that in mind, how did the the panel's opinion come down, and and which of these contentions did the majority choose um, to reckon with? 
It's important to note that the Supreme Court of the United States has never spoken as to whether the Second Amendment protects the right to have guns outside the home. From 1791 until 2008, the Supreme Court, in all of its decisions, though there weren't that many, said that the Second Amendment is about a right to have guns for purpose of militia service. Therefore, there's no right of individuals to have guns apart from that context. In June 2008, in District of Columbia versus Heller, the Supreme Court held that people have a right to have guns, at least in their homes, for the sake of security. No subsequent case has dealt with the scope of the Second Amendment. And so as a result, whether there is even a right to have guns outside the home under the Second Amendment is something the United States Supreme Court hasn't spoken to. The en banc decision didn't see the need to address it. The en banc decision said, and this is an opinion by Judge William Fletcher for the en banc court, said the real question is, does the Second Amendment protect a right to have concealed firearms in public? And the Ninth Circuit said, and I quote, the Second Amendment does not preserve or protect a right of a member of the general public to carry concealed firearms in public, period. If there's no right to have concealed weapons in public, then the state obviously can regulate having concealed weapons in public, including the way California has done so. Now, before reaching that conclusion, the court laid out a relatively thorough historical analysis of the right to to carry concealed weapons. And you contributed an opinion column to the Daily Journal, and you mentioned that this lengthy historical recitation, for one, isn't really necessary, and also that in some ways its use is a bit problematic. Why do you say that? You're absolutely right that Judge Fletcher's opinion is primarily historical examination of the right to carry concealed weapons. He starts with 13th century England. He spends many pages tracing English law on the topic. He includes that English law for centuries consistently prohibited carrying concealed arms in public. He then looks at the laws in the colonies. He then looks at the laws in the states after the ratification of the Second Amendment. And so he says all of this law is consistent based on history. There's no right to have concealed weapons. This is similar to the kind of analysis that Justice Scalia did in the case I mentioned, District of Columbia versus Heller. I am critical of focusing on history. Judge Fletcher's opinion is really based entirely on this history. I'm not an originalist. I don't believe the meaning of a constitutional provision today is determined by what was thought of it at the time that it was adopted, even assuming that we could know that. That I think that Judge Fletcher's opinion gives an unnecessary legitimacy to originalism as a method of constitutional interpretation. I think there are other ways he could have, and he should have come to this conclusion. For example, in District of Columbia versus Heller in 2008, Justice Scalia's majority opinion was clear that laws prohibiting concealed weapons are constitutional. Also, the United States Supreme Court in 1897 in Robertson v. Baldwin upheld laws prohibiting concealed weapons. The court in Robertson v. Baldwin said there is no Second Amendment right to have concealed weapons. That precedent is binding on the Ninth Circuit. I think they could have decided the case based on that without going through all of the historical exegesis. Okay. Now, setting aside the analysis for a second, let's talk about the, the framing that the majority used, something that the dissent criticized. As we touched on, essentially there were three contentions brought by the appellants, but the majority simply reckoned with whether or not the concealed carry 
restrictions violated the Second Amendment. They didn't try to answer the question of whether or not the Second Amendment guarantees the right to carry outside of the home, and they didn't address whether or not this concealed carry restriction, when viewed alongside the state's open carry restriction, violated the Second Amendment. So do you have any problem with the way the majority framed their opinion here? I don't have a problem with how the majority framed the opinion. The specific issue in this case is whether the California law prohibiting concealed weapons without a permit violates the Second Amendment. The issue then is, is there a Second Amendment right to have concealed weapons? And Judge Fletcher, writing for the en banc court, says unequivocally, there is no such right protected by the Second Amendment. History shows no such right was ever intended. He says, whether there's a right to openly carry weapons is a different question left for another day. Now, the dissent agrees with that that first point, that carrying a concealed weapon is not a right guaranteed by the Second Amendment. But of course, they say that the analysis really, in this case, should not stop there. Because when you look at the, the concealed carry restrictions in tandem with the open carry restrictions, it might seem like there isn't the ability for residents to carry firearms outside of the home. How would you respond to the dissent saying that the, the majority really didn't do enough work here? We should note that it was a seven to four decision. There were four dissenting judges. Um, judge Callahan's dissent is the one that I think you're most referring to. And what Judge Callahan said was much like what Judge O'Scanlan said in the panel decision. She said that there's a right to have guns outside the home. If there's a right to have guns outside the home, you've got to either be able to openly carry them or carry them in a concealed way. If the law prohibits open carry, it can't restrict concealed weapons from being carried. Um, Of course, that assumes that there is a right to have guns outside the home. That's something the United States Supreme Court has never held. Also, even if there's a right to have guns outside the home, there's still the specific question, is there a right to have concealed weapons? Whatever the law may be of the Second Amendment with regard to open weapons, is there a right to concealed weapons? And there I think that both Judge Fletcher and Judge Graber and her concurring opinion explain why such a right doesn't exist under the Second Amendment. Now, I, I assume I know the answer that you'll give to this question, but as the dissent says, any fair reading of Heller and McDonald compels the conclusion that the right to keep and bear arms extends beyond one's front door. But you say this is still an open question, correct? It's very much an open question. Heller is clear that it's about the right to have guns in the home for the sake of security. It doesn't speak in terms of whether there is or isn't a right to have guns outside the home. In fact, Justice Scalia's opinion was quite explicit that the court did not want to overturn long-standing regulations of guns. Specifically, he mentioned the court was not overturning the long-standing regulation of concealed weapons. So I think part of the problem for the dissent is they want to use District of Columbia versus Heller where it serves their purpose and ignore the parts of the opinion that don't serve the purpose. But one aspect of the opinion is it just doesn't speak to the question of whether there's right to have guns outside the home. The other case that you mentioned, McDonald versus City of Chicago from 2010, just held that the Second Amendment applies to state and local governments, that it's it's called incorporated into the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment, so as to apply to state and local governments. The court, in that case, didn't talk about the scope of what's protected by the Second Amendment. Maybe getting to a slightly different criticism of the dissent, it seems to suggest that the opinion here, without taking a comprehensive view of California's 
statutory scheme regarding the carry open or concealed of weapons in public sort of kicks the can down the road a bit and 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 that there will certainly be now a case that that will more squarely address that question what do you make of, of that suggestion and do you expect a case like that to be brought I do think that there's a case that's going to have to be resolved in terms of does the Second Amendment protect the right to have guns outside the home? And if there's a Second Amendment right to have guns outside the home, then can it be constitutional to prohibit both open carrying and concealed carrying? I think one answer to all of this is to say that the California law does allow people to have concealed weapons so long as they meet the requirements in order to get a permit. So in this sense, I think the dissent mischaracterizes California law. The dissent characterizes California law as it prohibits all guns outside the home by prohibiting both open carrying and concealed carrying. I think response to that could be is, no, California law allows people to have concealed weapons so long as they get a permit and meet the requirements for a permit. And that's constitutional under the Second Amendment. Right. I believe it was Judge Graber that wrote a concurrence saying that even if, in fact, the Second Amendment does protect the right to carry a concealed weapon, that this restriction would pass any level of scrutiny given to it. Because like you say, it doesn't completely prohibit concealed carry, just it requires good cause to be shown. And I think in that sense, Judge Graber's opinion more directly addresses the argument of the dissent. I think what Judge Graber is saying is, even assume there's a right to have guns outside the home, even assume some heightened scrutiny is used for this right, Still, the prohibition of concealed weapons in the California law is constitutional. Judge Silverman wrote a dissent to respond to Judge Graber saying heightened scrutiny is used for the Second Amendment and that the government hasn't sufficiently proven that prohibiting concealed weapons decreases crime so as to justify the law. Okay, now it seems the timing of this opinion is a bit interesting in that it comes out just a couple of weeks after a similar case to share a case where some different sorts of gun restrictions in terms of the commercial sale of guns were considered to, in fact, potentially at least violate the Second Amendment, and that opinion was also written by Judge Scanlon. Do you think that the outcome here suggests perhaps a greater likelihood that that case could be revisited en banc? I would predict that there is en banc review in Tashara. Um, the interesting thing about that is it was also a two-to-one decision, though in that case, it was Judge Silverman who dissented, Judge Silverman who here dissented in the en banc case. Interesting. So Judge Silverman and Tashara was willing to allow the zoning ordinance that limited the number where, where gun stores could be located, but here Judge Silverman would vote to strike down the law with regard to concealed weapons. Zooming out a bit in the opinion piece that you submitted to the Daily Journal. You mentioned that the prevailing U.S. Supreme Court attitude on Second Amendment jurisprudence could stand to shift, and perhaps dramatically, if Justice Scalia is replaced by a Democratic appointee. Could you describe to me what that shift might look like? For instance, Heller is one of the very few U.S. Supreme Court rulings directly on the Second Amendment. It obviously helps to form the basis on which opinions like Peruta and Tashara rest. Could its holding be revisited? I think very much the holding in Heller could be revisited and is likely to be revisited depending on the composition of the court in the years ahead. Remember, from 1791 to 2008, the Supreme Court always said that the Second Amendment was just about a right to have guns for purpose of militia service. District of Columbia versus Heller was the first time in American history that any law regulating guns, federal, state, or local, was declared unconstitutional by the Supreme Court. That case was five to four. Justice Scalia wrote for the majority, joined by Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Kennedy, Thomas, and Alito. 
Justices Stevens, Souter, Ginsburg, and Breyer dissented. Two years later, in McDonald versus City of Chicago, the court held, as we've been talking about, that the Second Amendment applies to state and local governments. Same split, essentially, among the justices. Um, there had been some change in the composition of the court by that point. In McDonald, it was Justice Alito writing for the court, joined by Roberts, Scalia, Kennedy, and Thomas. And the dissent is, you got Justices Stevens, Ginsburg, Breyer, and Sotomayor. What you see is that the court, like our society, is ideologically divided in the meaning of the Second Amendment. The five justices who were part of the majority in Heller, well, Justice Scalia is no longer there. There's no longer, right now on the court, a fifth vote for the position of the majority, the view that the Second Amendment protects the right of individuals to have guns apart from militia service. So imagine that a Democratic appointee like Merrick Garland replaces Antonin Scalia. And imagine that Justice Garland has the same view as Justices Ginsburg, Breyer, Sotomayor, and Kagan. There would then be five votes to certainly not extend Heller, and maybe even five votes to overrule it. Interesting. Do you think a changed composition of the court could also have bearing on whether or not this case is granted uh, certiorari? I do. I think here we've got to realize is that the Supreme Court has had many opportunities to take Second Amendment cases in the six years since McDonald, and the Supreme Court has denied cert in every single Second Amendment case. At some point, the Supreme Court is going to have to take up the Second Amendment, but I would doubt that either side of this issue on the Supreme Court would want to take Peruta until they had a better sense of who's going to be the ninth justice. Because the four justices who take the gun rights position, Roberts, Kennedy, Thomas Alito, don't see a fifth vote to overturn the Ninth Circuit decision. And the four liberal justices, Ginsburg, Breyer, Sonny Kagan, would certainly see no reason to take the Ninth Circuit opinion. And so my guess is if Peruta comes to the court with eight justices, cert will be denied. Okay. Well, I think we'll leave it there for now, and, and we'll see if, in fact, you're right. Erwin Chemerinsky, Dean of the UC Irvine School of Law, I really appreciate you being on the show. Thanks so much. My pleasure. Thank you so much. One more time, that was Erwin Chemerinsky, Dean of the UC Irvine School of Law. We'll now move to my discussion with Cheryl Burgess and Josie Franny from Kenobi Martins on the U.S. Supreme Court ruling for Monday in Halo v. Pulse. Joining us now are Ms. Cheryl Burgess and Mr. Joe Franny. They're partners with the firm Kenobi Martins, which specializes in intellectual property. Ms. Burgess and Mr. Franny, thanks very much for being on the show. Thanks for having us. Glad to be here. So the case we're talking about now was filed out of the U.S. Supreme Court on Monday. It's Halo Electronics versus Pulse Electronics, a patent infringement case. But the issue here isn't specifically whether a patent was or was not infringed, but instead whether, in the context where a patent has been infringed, whether enhanced damages should be applied. Before we get to the meat of the opinion, I'd like to take a bit of a stroll through the history of the Patent Act much as Chief Justice John Roberts does in his opinion. So I understand the history of this act goes back a ways to the 18th century. Is that correct? That's right. And in, in fact, uh, the treble damages provision was actually mandatory back in 1793. The, the statute then said 
a sum that shall be at least equal to three times the price for which a patentee is usually sold or licensed the invention. And so going back as far as the 1700s, damages for patent infringement was mandatory to be treble whatever the actual number was. And then in 1800, uh, that was revised a little bit, but the statute still mandated treble damages. Uh, And the basis for all of this was to ensure that the patentee was fully compensated for the use of their their invention. That makes sense. I imagine the possibility of treble damages would also serve as a, a pretty significant deterrent to any potential patent infringers. That's right. There was a deterrent aspect to it, but at least in the very early cases, it seemed like it was uh, originally designed for compensation, not deterrence. And then uh, there are some Supreme Court cases that indicate that it was more in- intended to punish and deter than it was to compensate. I see. Now, moving on a few decades, I believe in 1836, the the act was revised so that treble damages were not mandated in every case. Is that correct? That's right. In 1836, courts got the discretion as to whether to enhance damages. Not necessarily treble. They could treble, but uh, they at least got the discretion in certain egregious cases uh, to enhance damages. And that's where a lot of the Supreme Court's language about egregious and punitive deterrence originated is back in the early 1800s. Okay. Now, there have been a few other revisions and changes over the years, but I think roughly that context in terms of the treble damages stayed roughly the same until we get to the the operative statute at issue in this case, which I think was codified in 1952. That's correct. So in 1952, uh, Congress enacted Section uh, 284, and that says the court may increase the damages up to three times the amount found or assessed. So that kind of continued the discretionary enhancement with a 3x cap on it. And that's the, essentially the statute that we have today. So we have Section 284 as a statutory background, but then there's also some, some case precedent that's very important here, namely the case of I believe it's Inri Seagate Electronics. So if you could please lay out for me the Seagate case and the the test that it provides for whether or not enhanced damages should be applied. So the case of Inri Seagate is a little bit of an interesting context. It arose in the context of a petition for mandamus, seeking a writ of mandamus to vacate an order compelling disclosure of certain privileged documents. So it's interesting in that it didn't really come up in the context of an award of damages or enhanced damages. Uh, The case was not complete. But what happened was Seagate had obtained an opinion letter on the asserted patents and intended to rely on that opinion letter and disclose it as support for their good faith in continuing to make and sell their products. Uh, they were intending to rely on that to say that they, you know, they had a good faith belief that either the patent was invalid or not infringed. And the patent owner sought discovery of the trial counsel's privileged and work product information related to any opinions that were in that opinion that Seagate intended to rely upon. So they, they decided that they had to address the legal standard for willful infringement because that informs the relevance of the proper scope of discovery. And the test that the Federal Circuit came up with in Seagate was a a two-part test. First, the patent owner must show by clear and convincing evidence that the infringer acted 
despite an objectively high likelihood that its actions constituted infringement of a valid patent, and second, that the risk of infringement was either known or so obvious that it should have been known to the accused infringer. Let's go ahead and, and move on to the issue exactly presented here before the Supreme Court, whether or not this test aptly correlates to Section 284 from the Patent Act. Is that the question here? Well, so there were two cases. Uh, one we call HALO, the other one we call Stryker. In one case, the jury found willfulness, but the district court declined to award enhanced damages because it found that the actions were not objectively baseless. And in the Stryker case, the jury found willfulness, the district court did enhance damages, but the federal circuit vacated because they thought the trial defense was reasonable. And so the question in both cases was the viability of the first prong of the Seagate test, namely whether this objectively baseless or objectively reckless criteria was viable under Supreme Court law and within Section 284, and the Supreme Court held that it wasn't. Right. Okay. And in this opinion filed Monday, Chief Justice John Roberts, like you say, struck down the Seagate test. What in the court's view, or why in the court's view, doesn't the Seagate test properly comport with, with Section 284? There are a couple of reasons that the court articulated. Um, first and foremost, the statute says that the court may increase damages, and there has to be a discretionary component there. Uh, but the main reason that it appears that the Supreme Court rejected the test is that this objective test that does not take into account the subjective culpability of the defendant, uh, they felt was inconsistent with the statutory language. Like you say, Chief Justice Roberts mentions that with that objective requirement, that doesn't get into the mind of the potential infringer. And so potentially some of these infringers that might have very willful and malevolent intent to infringe a patent could be, you know, could escape liability because of this test. But I'd like to ask, why doesn't the Seagate test capture those folks? With the second part, there is a subjective element that would test their specific mindset. So why could those, the worst of the worst, escape liability under this particular test? So the reason that happens is because the first prong of the Seagate test, the objectively reckless prong, provided a hurdle that, that you have to surmount before you even get to consideration of what the subjective intent of the infringer was. So an infringer who comes up with a clever defense at trial, either on invalidity or non-infringement, even if it's not even if it's not ultimately effective and they are found to infringe, if it's reasonable, then they had, they, they, there was no objective recklessness. It doesn't matter that the defense was not, was not considered at the time the infringer began infringing and that it was kind of a post hoc defense that trial attorneys came up with after the complaint was already filed. Sure. And sort of jumping off that, I'd be curious, this doesn't necessarily have a whole lot to do with the new doctrinal development, but in terms of coming up with defenses after the fact, is that the sort of thing that generally is not available to defense counsel? Uh, well, so there's two parts in patent infringement. There's liability for infringing the patent to, you know, to begin with. And then there's this willfulness or enhanced damages piece. And so for liability... Uh, defense counsel comes up with every defense they can possibly think of that they think will carry the day, and it doesn't matter when they came up with it, whether the defendant knew about it, 
none of that matters. And every defense counsel will put their absolute best defense uh, forward at trial to show non-liability. This piece, this case, really has to do with whether if they lose on those defenses, uh, what happens, can the district court uh, increase damages and under what circumstances should the district court increase damages? And so what the district court will do in those situations is it will look at what the defendant actually knew and what its defenses were at the time um, and won't be thinking about what were the ultimate defenses they presented at trial. They will be thinking about what did you know at the time and were you a pirate? Were you intending to infringe this patent? And if so, they're going to exercise the discretion to enhance damages. Uh, so it's certainly not unusual for defense counsel to come up with every defense they can possibly present, um, at least on the liability side, but it's not necessarily going to help once you get to the willfulness prong. I see. So at trial, all the colorable defenses are still viable. We're just talking about the damages stage here. So a little bit more on that point, I think in the opinion, Chief Justice Roberts writes that the Seagate test could allow bad actors to escape any Section 284 comeuppance solely on the strength of his attorney's ingenuity. I assume that's relating to the use of after-the-fact defenses in the damages stage by attorneys. I'd be curious to ask you, to any extent, is it disappointing to read in an opinion justices trimming doctrine specifically to circumscribe an attorney's ingenuity? So I don't think it's really trying to trim an attorney's ingenuity, because I think the attorney can be as ingenious as they want with the defenses to liability. And they, you know, and they can come up with any ingenious theories they might have on the damages enhancement as well. Uh, it just changes the, the test. Attorneys now, when you're looking at what are your defenses to a charge of willful infringement and possible enhanced damages, you're going to have to focus your arguments on the subjective intent and what did the infringer do at the time they began infringing. What did they know and what did they do based on that information and were their actions in good faith? Also relating to this first step of the two-step Seagate test, Chief Justice Roberts mentions that there's sort of a separate problem and that's the evidentiary standard, which was clear and convincing evidence. Now, why is that a problem as well? And, and also, if the Seagate test is being knocked out altogether, what's sort of the point of bringing up this second problem with it? Uh, I think there's two reasons for that. Uh, first, he looks at um, enhanced damages and specifically willfulness as a whole and says uh, preponderance of the evidence has governed these issues for two years. There's no reason to have this heightened evidentiary burden. And so from a historical perspective, he uh, rejects the heightened burden to show entitlement to enhanced damages. And then to answer your question, if the Seagate test is being knocked out, why does it matter? And the reason it matters is because we're not going to, we're not going to apply, of course, the Seagate test is gone, but with respect to the test that is left or the analysis that is left, we're not going to apply the heightened evidentiary burden to that anymore. We're going to apply the preponderance of the evidence burden. So he's only talking about it in the context of what do we do now that the Seagate test is gone. Okay. Then maybe getting to that now, what do we do now that the Seagate test is gone? What What is the test now for enhanced damages? Well, the opinion has a, not a terrible amount of guidance in it. It essentially says 
to district courts, look, you should be reserving enhanced damages for what he calls egregious cases that are typified by willful infringement. That's kind of the, the test. So courts know egregious cases. And how do you know what's an egregious case? He points courts to the last 200 years of precedent in which you know, courts have been saying this is an egregious case, this is not an egregious case, and also allowing district courts to do what they do very well, which is exercise their discretion in determining whether something is so culpable that they should increase damages for deterrent or compensation purposes. Then which way do you think this will go? So we've knocked out the too rigid Seagate test, but still the court says only in egregious cases should enhanced damages be applied. So do you think enhanced damages might become more frequent or less frequent, roughly the same? So I think enhanced damages, or at least the opportunity enhanced damages, will be more common today than it was under the Seagate two-pronged test. But I don't think it'll be more, more common than it was pre-2007, because the standard in place prior to Seagate was very similar to what's now in place today. The only difference being that the standard of proof has, has been decreased a little bit. So preponderance of the evidence is a little bit easier to prove than, than what was applicable under Seagate. And so you might see a little bit, uh, a little bit of a difference from that perspective, but I don't think we're going to see a huge change in the the amount of enhanced damages from what may have been the case pre-2007 timeframe. Now, one other change resulting from this opinion is the review process of, of damage awards. I think the court refers to what had been a, a tripartite appellate review, which they've now altered somewhat. Is this a significant change? Uh, what, what exactly is going on here? This is a relatively significant change, but it's uh, the reason for it is when you wipe out the Seagate ob- objective and subjective tests, when you wipe out Seagate, then the standards of review that go with those various prongs are also going to be wiped out. And so going forward, district court judges exercising their discretion as to whether to enhance or not, um, they're going to be reviewed for an abuse of discretion. And that's a much tougher standard to overcome than, at least at the appellate court, um, than the standards that were in place during Seagate. Okay, now there's a concurrence here written by Justice Breyer that seems to express a bit of concern. I think perhaps that these treble damages could be too available. And Justice Breyer writes that more often a patent will reach beyond its lawful scope. How would you describe Justice Breyer's concerns here? And and do you share them? Uh, Justice Breyer's concerns, I think, are uh, that if the damages, treble damages, are going to have somewhat of a chilling effect on litigants. Anytime you increase the penalties for doing something, people are going to be a little chilled from getting close to the line. And his concern is that we don't want to chill people from doing legitimate legal things that are close to the line by virtue of having this heavy damages penalty out there um, if they happen to be wrong. And I think he, uh, uh, he reconciles that with the majority's opinion by saying, if this is only applied in egregious cases, that's going to be fine. But if this is applied more often, there's going to be this chilling effect that we don't want because 
patent law has got to be a balance between promoting innovation and rewarding the inventor and enabling the public to build on what the inventor has done and not uh, having a patent overstep what was given to the, the public. And so I think Breyer's um, concerns are about that balance. And um, I share those concerns some, but I am comforted just as he is that if this only happens, if enhancement only happens in egregious cases, which hopefully is very rare, uh, that the chilling effect will be small. Then continuing to look forward a bit now with this, this new development in, in the patent law doctrine, you're both IP attorneys. Does this HALO precedent change your approach at all if you are, are working on, on a patent suit? I think it will change it a little. The test here now is going to focus really on the subjective intent of the infringer. So you really need to make sure that you're obtaining discovery relevant to willfulness. You're not going to be able to rely on the defenses to infringement that you bring at trial as, you know, an objective reason uh, to avoid enhanced damage under willfulness anymore. So you're going to have to make sure that the client has a good story about why they went ahead with whatever acts were found to be infringing and, and make sure that there's discovery on the record regarding why that was reasonable and that you have a good story to tell. Um, and on the converse side, if you're representing a patentee, you're going to want to get discovery to figure out what kind of story the infringer has and to try to establish that they did not act in good faith and that there was some kind of bad faith. And so you're going to want to seek out any information that you can that can show there was bad faith, such as you know, copying knowledge of the patent and a failure to really evaluate whether there was infringement or whether there was any belief that the patent was invalid, etc. And I agree with Cheryl on that, that it will change things a little, because I think in most cases, if you're representing a defendant, you want to tell that good faith story anyway. You want, and even for the liability phase, you want the jury to feel like you were you know, the good guy. You want to wear the white hat throughout the entire process. Uh, the way it might change a little bit is you, you're now going to want to make sure that there's some documentary evidence or some record of that in case you have to present that in the second phase, maybe in a willfulness phase. Then maybe just one last one as IP attorneys. How do you feel about this result? Is this, is this a good development for patent law or would you have wanted this case to come down differently? I, for one, think it is a good development for patent law. Um, I think that the concerns that Justice Roberts had, which are that defendants who have extremely culpable intent could be exonerated just because they came up with a non-frivolous defense at trial, I, I don't think that's what the system was intended to do, and I don't think that that sets the right uh, incentives for players in the market to act as reasonable business people. And so I think that this opinion does set the right incentives going forward for both patentees and potential infringers. And I would tend to agree with that. I mean, I, I think we still have to see how the discretion is applied by the district courts. And, you know, there, there are some concerns expressed in the concurring opinion about, you know, small businesses and, and individual innovators and the potential for treble damages maybe 
seeing some of that innovation, but I think if it's applied appropriately to really only address egregious circumstances, the net effect will not be one of impeding innovation, and I think it'll be a good change overall. The overall message of this case is don't be willful, don't be a bad actor, and nothing bad will happen to you, and I, uh, that can't be a bad message. It's good advice for all of us, I think. Well, great. We'll, uh, we'll go ahead and leave it there for now. Mrs. Burgess and Mr. Cianfrani, thanks so much for being on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. One more time, that was Miss Cheryl Burgess and Mr. Josie Infrani from Kenobi Martins. Finally, let's move to my discussion with Myron Moskowitz about oral argument. Welcoming in now Myron Moskowitz from the Moskowitz Appellate Team, where he serves as the legal director. He's the author of two books on appellate law, one Winning an Appeal and another Moskowitz on Appeal. He clerked for Justice Raymond Peters of the California Supreme Court, and not least, he is a regular biweekly column contributor to the opinion section of the Daily Journal. Mr. Moskowitz, thanks for being on the program. Thanks, Brian. It uh, should be fun. Uh, I might mention at the top here, I know your your outfit up there, the Moskowitz appellate team, is is relatively new. How's that all going? Oh, it's going very well. I have um, four former appellate justices on my team who um, are very experienced and very smart and can really really give us some insight how appellate courts will view a certain case. So they help evaluate a case for appeal and then help with the, the brief and the oral argument. And it's uh, been very successful so far. We've got a lot of cases and we've had some uh, pretty good successes. Sounds like you guys have quite a bit of appellate knowledge to bring to bear, and we're happy you're here to share a bit of it with us this morning. We'll be talking about oral arguments today. You you submit columns, as I said, uh, bi-weekly. They appear in the Daily Journal, and, and one a couple months ago focused specifically on oral arguments and your particular and unique approach to, to how to think about them and how to execute them. We'll kind of go through chronologically, I suppose. You're done in the briefing stage. You're you're getting prepared for oral arguments. Now, you lay out in your column sort of a way that people generally tend to prepare, but you say that you tend to go about oral argument preparation a bit differently. Tell me about your approach to oral argument. Well, what most attorneys do uh, at oral argument is they go through their briefs, and uh, they may shorten it considerably, pick out maybe two or three of the, the best arguments, the most important ones. But other than that, they're kind of going through the same facts, the same cases, and um, uh, repeating what's in the brief. And um, it, it, it almost never works. I, I mean, what, what's your goal at our argument? Uh, it seems to me your goal is to do something to win the case. Now, if you've already won the case on the briefs, then oral argument really doesn't matter. So I think the way to get the most value out of it is to go in there thinking, um, I've lost, the briefs didn't work. Now I got to do something to turn the court around. And uh, that's very difficult to do because you're you're addressing judges who are uh, very smart people. They've got research attorneys who are smart. They've gone through all the briefs, they've researched the law, they've looked at the record. And that um, they pretty much made up their minds. And uh, the description I just gave applies both to the federal courts and the California courts. Uh, in the California courts, it's a little worse because they've actually drafted the opinion. Uh, they kind of have to front load things because we have this 
uh, rule in our state constitution that they have to turn out a decision within 90 days after uh, the case is submitted and is submitted at the end of oral argument. So they have to front load and prepare the opinion. Now, getting people like that to change a written opinion uh, is very, very difficult. And if all you do is go over what you've already given them in the briefs, uh, it's not going to work. So my view is um, there's hardly anything that will work. But the only thing that has a prayer is, is something bold, dramatic, and somewhat new, um, a theme, a very strong theme uh, that goes right to the guts of the justice of the case. And um, it, it's not about case law. Uh, it may be about some particular facts in the case. It's facts and policy that matter. Uh, the case, it's, it's too late to persuade them with cases. They've already read the cases. Either worked or it didn't. So uh, I hardly ever mention any cases in my uh, oral argument. Uh, if a question comes up about a case, I'll answer it. But I'll, I'll try to answer it in a way that incorporates my new strong theme. And um, my hope is uh, that a strong presentation of a dramatic, simple theme will get at least one of the judges to start to wonder and, you know, maybe I'm right and go back in the deliberation room where the judges confer after the argument and uh, be my advocate. Um, that's about the most you can hope for. And because uh, you're trying to, to do something uh, very bold, change the bottom line of an opinion, uh, not just change language. Uh, you you want to change it from affirmed to, re, to reversed or, or the opposite. Very hard to do. And uh, it rarely happens. I mean, you can talk to appellate judges uh, and ask them how many times did oral argument change, not the language, but the bottom line. It changes the language of the opinion quite frequently somewhat. But the bottom line, they're going to tell you hardly ever. Uh, one judge told me uh, twice in five years, uh, and that's typical. Uh, but that's what you're shooting for. You want to be one of those that turns them around. And um, you're not going to do it just by going, o going over your brief. Sure. So you mentioned that in addition to, or perhaps as opposed to, to reciting your briefs and, and rehashing the arguments that you've already made, it's important to, to do something bold, have, have a theme that encapsulates and evocatively depicts the, the case at, at hand. Do you have any sort of examples of ways that you've taken a a case and, and delivered yeah. some, some powerful theme. Yeah, it, it's, uh, I, I mean, what I do is, before all argument, is I go over the briefs, um, my briefs and the other guy's briefs. I, I don't go over the record again, because uh, the, the parts of the record that are significant are going to be in the briefs. And if something comes up about the record, I, instead of citing the record, I'll just usually tell the court, look on page 23 of my brief, and you'll see the sites there, um, something like that. But, but what I'm looking for when I review the briefs is an inspiration. Now, if I've done a good job on the brief, and I usually do, uh, I will have a theme in the brief that kind of goes throughout the brief. But I think, you know, maybe I can get a stronger theme or a simpler theme. Um, 
because it's got to be really short. I mean, in the brief, you got some room to elaborate on things. You don't have that in oral argument. It's all so quick. So I'm looking for just uh, a sentence or two that sums up what this is about. Uh, I had this case in the Ninth Circuit a few years back involving, uh, it was a securities case. This, uh, my client was an older woman who went to a, uh, a bank to get a loan, and they talked her into investing her funds, about $2 million with them, and promised her uh, a very high return and a very safe investment. Well, that's not what happened. They put it into some risky securities, and the value went way down. And uh, uh, when it finally went uh, down from $2 million to about 400000 she finally contacted a lawyer who brought suit uh, under the federal securities law, and uh, the trial judge knocked it out on the statute of limitations, saying she waited too long. Okay. And uh, the, the general rule applied across the country is uh, you got to sue when a reasonable investor <clears throat> would see storm warnings of some type of misbehavior or fraud on the part of the investment company. And the trial judge said she should have known. She got a, a monthly uh, uh, statement from them that showed the value going down, and that should have told her. And um, the, the, the case law generally supported what the, what the bank was saying, and I had to get around it. And in my brief, I went over a few opposing cases, and, and um, uh, I, I wrote a good brief. But before the oral argument, I, I got this inspiration. And I got up there and argued, and I said, look, um, when Congress passed this uh, law in, in the 1930s to protect investors, who do you think they wanted to protect? The, the reasonable investor that the bank is talking about, uh, Warren Buffett, somebody like that? Or do they primarily want to protect people like my client, little old ladies who didn't know anything about finances, she was a widow. Her husband had taken care of the finances, uh, which is not unusual. And um, after he dies and she's left with the uh, inheritance, the way I put it, I said, do we really want these vultures going after her money and taking advantage of her ignorance? Uh, is that what Congress intended? And um, it worked. And, and, of course, part of my thinking was, these judges were uh, three older men, uh, all of whom were married, and uh, the thought might cross their minds that uh, when they go, their, their wives might be stuck in that situation. Sure. So that was my theme, and I kept it really simple, really short. I let off with it, and then when questions came up, I, I worked it into my answer because... Um, uh, this this is desperation time. You know, you start with the assumption you've lost, and you got to do something powerful to turn around. Uh, you don't want a jury argument. Judges don't like that. I didn't, you know, go on and on about how uh, about my client's life and how innocent she was. But th this was a powerful argument that was in line with their job of interpreting uh, a law of Congress. And so it, it, I gave them a way to fit it in with the way they see their job. And um, I won the case. Did, did I win it because of this argument or would I win it without it, just on the briefs? Um, there's no way of telling. I mean, the, the, their opinion doesn't say anything about that, about sure. whether their oral argument turned them around. But um, 
in my view, I, I gave it the best shot. I, I made the most of oral argument. And I don't see many attorneys doing that. Sure, I, I suppose it's impossible to know like you say, but I would wonder if there or if any other instances you got the feeling that the court may have been leaning against you and by virtue of your oral argument presentation, you were able to turn them. But like you say, I suppose there's no way to know for sure. There's, there's no way to know. Um, you know, I, I have a very good success rate on appeal. I, I usually re- represent appellants and the usual reversal rate for appellants is around 20%. Uh, my reversal rate is around 70%. So uh, is it the briefs or is it the oral argument? It, it's it's very hard to tell. But uh, in, in California especially, as I mentioned, both the Supreme Court and, and the Courts of Appeal have um, written the opinion ahead of time. Now, th- there's, there's one division which issues tentative opinions. Uh, ahead of time, six. It's it's uh, the fourth district division two at Riverside. It's the only one in the state. They give them to you like six weeks before oral argument. Now that's one place where we'll know right. <laughs> if oral argument mattered because if the tentative is against you and uh, it, it changes after oral argument, you know you did a hell of a job at oral argument. Um, uh, I haven't had uh, an oral argument there, so I, I can't really test it with that, but maybe other attorneys can. Um, e- even there, uh, from talking to people, uh, they don't change very often. It's hard to turn them around, just like every other division. But if you do, you'll know it. Uh, I wish other courts of appeal and the Supreme Court would follow their policy, because th- they say it- it's cut down on the number of oral arguments, makes the oral arguments much more productive and informative, because the attorneys are focusing on what the court is about to do. Uh, if, if you don't have that, it, it's a kind of a scattershot thing. You're guessing what the important issues are. And uh, then you find out on the spot when they spring a question on you that seems to come out of left field, and that's what they think the case is about. But you haven't had any time to prepare for that. So I, I really like what the Riverside Court is doing, and I wish other courts would do it. But um, until that happens, uh, you, you kind of have to go in there blind, not knowing what approach they're going to take and have a powerful theme that talks them out of it if, um, if it's against you. Sure. Why do you think that practice is so isolated just in that one single appellate division? If most uh, of the other districts have these draft opinions prepared before oral arguments are presented, why not? circulate them. Uh, I've talked to several appellate judges about it. Uh, I get mixed answers. Uh, uh, there are some administrative problems that have to be solved. Uh, you got to get the opinion ready far enough ahead of time, oral argument. And um, th- th- these are internal problems at the court. Riverside has solved them. They said initially it was kind of hard, but now it's, it's really no big deal. And they've saved a lot of time and expense because See, when the lawyer gets the uh, uh, tentative, he talks it over his client. And the lawyer may say, look, uh, I I can't beat this. This is uh, based on the law, the way they see it. I'm not going to be able to talk them out of their oral argument. Let's save some money by not paying me for all the preparation and appearance. So it's really cut down on the number of, of arguments. And one of the judges there, Judge Hollenhurst, wrote a very good article explaining all this. I don't know if the other judges have read it or not uh, in the other districts, 
But I, I, I don't know. I, I, it, it changes the nature of all argument because the, the lawyer who uh, got the tentative against him uh, has to get up there and argue not against the other lawyer, which is what they usually do. They've got to argue against the judges right. and kind of force the judges to, to defend their tentative. And I suspect um, a lot of judges are not going to be comfortable with that. In Riverside, they don't mind. You know, they, we wrote it. It's our job to defend it uh, or, or change it if, if the lawyer shows us it's wrong. And uh, that's our job. You know, it's our job to achieve the just result. I mean, that's what's kind of getting lost in all this, this argument about tentatives. The, the, the job of the appellate court is to reach the most just result. And if showing the lawyer the tentative and letting him take a shot at it helps get the just result, that's what they should do. I mean, that's the whole point of having courts of appeal. So uh, I really don't get it. Uh, I've had appellate judges tell me, over my dead body will I uh, issue a tentative. Then you ask them, well, you should be a trial court judge. You were in law in motion. Didn't you do it there? They say, yeah, of course, we all did. Well, what's the difference? (laughs) (laughs) Why not? And uh, I've never had a satisfactory answer. Yeah, it does seem like the same logic should apply in both venues. Yeah, yeah. Um, But I I don't know. There's something going on that uh, I I don't totally understand uh, that breeds this uh, resistance. Okay, you touched on it there in your last answer a bit that in certain circumstances it might be in the client's and the attorney's best interest to to waive oral argument. You mentioned it there in the context of having a draft opinion in front of you, which would be helpful. But in the opinion piece that you contribute, you mentioned sort of more generally, maybe if you don't have a draft opinion, it still might be in certain circumstances the best idea to, to waive oral argument, especially like you say, because oftentimes the judges have already made their minds before the arguments take place. So how do you know when or um, when you shouldn't uh, go ahead and, and waive the oral argument? Well, we're talking about a significant step in the appellate process that if it's done right, is going to take quite a few hours. I mean, I've heard of lawyers spending 80 hours on preparing for oral argument and holding moot courts, and you're spending the client's money. And you have a duty to explain to the client, look, here's what it's going to cost to do it right. I have to tell you honestly that the chance it'll change the result, uh, at least historically and statistically, is extremely low. Uh, It's your call. I I think that's the way you have to do it. Personally, as an appellate lawyer, I don't want to leave oral argument. I'm very uncomfortable with it. I think there's always a chance. I'm good at it. And um, even if it's a, you know, five or two percent chance, I want to take it because I I really want to win the case. But it should be the client's call. Okay, then uh, maybe we'll go ahead and close with one last one. I'm sure there are appellate lawyers out there listening that would be quite desirous of the appellate reversal rate that you have. What are the most important things that you, you think attorneys should have in mind when they come to oral argument or as they prepare? Well, let, let me start out by repeating with it what any appellate judge or, or researcher attorney will tell you, uh, the briefs are much more important. You know, there's some lawyers that think I'm so good on my feet, uh, it doesn't matter what I write, I'm, I can persuade anybody on my feet. Um, that's not, that doesn't work, you know. Maybe that'll work in front of a jury, but 
by the time you get the oral argument, um, that they've decided the case. So you got to do the best job you can in the briefs. And uh, oral argument is just kind of an extra. Having said that, when you go to oral argument, um, you got to be well prepared. You got to be able to answer any question. But you don't want to just react. You, you want to be proactive. You want to get out there with a very strong thing to try to turn them around and um, don't let yourself be bullied or, uh, you know, because that'll happen. So there are some appellate judges who'll give you a really hard time. And um, if you can convince just one of them to take a second look at it, um, that person will be a much more effective advocate than you will be because he's one of them. He's one of their colleagues. So um, don't give up just because uh, one of them is giving you a hard time. Stick with that good thing. Uh, it goes by very fast. You're talking about 20, 30 minutes at the most. Sure. And um, you, you, you kind of you have to stay in control and not let them uh, dominate you. Lots of times all they're doing with their questions is uh, uh, announcing their decision. And um, you, you gotta you got to make them wonder, am I really doing the right thing here? Well, I think we'll leave it there for now. Mr. Myron Moskowitz, author of Winning an Appeal and Moskowitz on Appeal, legal director of the Moskowitz Appellate Team. All the best with your new firm, and thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you, Brian. Appreciate it. that, our show for June 17th, 2016 is complete. Once more, I'd like to tender sincere gratitude to all four of our guests, Mr. Erwin Chemerinsky, Ms. Cheryl Burgess, Mr. Joe Cianfrani, and Mr. Myron Moskowitz. I'd like to thank you too for tuning in. Don't forget, you can receive CLE credit for your having listened. There should be a link to a very short true-false test on the dailyjournal.com page where this podcast appears. Find that, complete the test, and one hour of credit is yours. Once again, I'm Brian Cardile. I look forward to speaking to you next Friday. Have a great week.